morning, everybody. Amazing time of worship and already of learning and things. And um, John will not want me to tell you that he wrote that song that they just played. doesn't want me to tell you because he's all humble about it, but I don't care. He's my special boy. <laughs> I won't claim him from Mike and Jen, but sometimes I want to. But uh, good on you guys. It was great. Appreciate it so much. Hallelujah, hallelujah, which simply means praise the Lord. And he does receive our praise through our life and through our song and through the many different facets of our life and everything. And so there's so much for us to celebrate. That's Really, the reason why we come together as a church, because collectively we give the Lord glory, we praise the Lord collectively through the ebbs and flows of our life and our connection as a as a family and really as a living organism. The church isn't just a place we come to on Sunday morning to where we just check in, do our time, or kind of feel like, hey, I got inspired today. It's a place for us to live our lives together. And the friendships and the relationships that we form here uh, go even outside these walls, even beyond a Sunday morning. So we're praying that's what you continue to find as you are a part of our church here at Faith. And I want to just mention a couple of things before we get into the word uh, this morning. Um, and that is just sort of in this celebration and family of things and stuff. Um, Miss Janet, who is our director of children's ministries is not with us this morning because her daughter, Kendra, who also serves in children's ministries, gave birth to like this amazing looking little munchkin named Liam. So uh, pretty excited about that and just really happy for mom and dad. And and of course, for Janet and Frank, as they welcome their first grandchild into the world and stuff, it's an amazing experience of which I can attest and so many of you can as well. So uh, congratulations to that whole family. I want to also mention before we get into the message, I, I want to highlight because there's so many things that we're kind of dropping on you saying, oh, get ready for this. And now we're even throwing out ballroom dancing. I mean, how cool is that, right? Uh, we're covering all the facets at faith, but, um, but actually I want to just highlight the fact that we do have baptism coming up in August. And I want to just put my own little kind of underscore on this because it is really one of the great highlights of our year together as a family of faith. Um, what we are celebrating is transforming. Uh, transformation going on in the lives of believers. These are folks that have uh, said they are following Jesus and are willing to demonstrate it visually before their friends and their family and their neighbors. And so it's a big celebration for us. Churches do it differently in terms of the frequency of baptism. There isn't anything in scripture that says a church must have, you know, baptisms once a month or only once a year or any of that sort of thing. So we get to choose. So what we've decided to do is to do a summer celebration for our baptism service. And if you are on the fence, let me just mention a couple of things. Really all your, you've heard Pastor Tom teach about this, that it's a, it's an outward act. It's a demonstration. So really primarily what you're doing is you're demonstrating the faith and the change that's already taken place on the inside of you. And you're doing that in a verbal and a visual way. The scriptures tell us that we testify of the Lord Jesus before others. There's no rule that says it has to be in front of 300 people. So I understand that can be scary. We get that, and we try to eliminate some of those obstacles as much as possible, but there's also an element of where this should cost us something. Jesus laid it all down for us, and so much of our culture today is picking and choosing the things it wants to participate and do, and they're doing it most often by the path of least resistance. 
we're tempted from time to time at faith to kind of back that off and say, well, maybe we're asking too much of people to like share their story or to, to do any of this publicly and stuff. And so we've accommodated, we've put, you know, videos together and that sort of thing and try to work with people's schedules. But ultimately, it's an opportunity for us to say, the Lord Jesus Christ has done something in my life and I want you to know about it. How, how can we squash that? How, how can we eliminate that or remove that from the life of our church? We all need to hear that from folks like us. So I would encourage you to not delay on that decision just based on nerves. Because we know every year this is what happens. And then towards the end, people are like, I'm just going to do it. I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to get my testimony prepared. I'm going to meet with somebody. I'm going to get ready to be dunked in the water. And that's, and then we wait. So I just want to take care of my poor associate pastor who won't tell you this. The longer you wait, the more it backs the whole train up. And uh, this poor guy wants to go on vacation before we do baptism Sunday. And last year he had to do baptism stuff during his vacation because we were shy <laughs> because we were embarrassed because we didn't get to our decision until so I'm just it, this is me being the heavy pretty intimidating isn't it so if you would please do business with the Lord but do it quickly don't delay you know he wants you to do it it's a command of scripture you know you've been delaying we get it we know that it's scary to do but it's so powerful and it's an encouraging time for all of us to see that the Lord is doing things in the lives of people. So there's my commercial for baptism. I would expect to see 20 signups at the end of the service today, right? Okay. Now, let me just call out the obvious. Have you noticed as you go to the gas pump that there's a lot of chatter going on these days? How many of you have had like conversations with people you never would have had a conversation with? Just because everyone's going, can you believe this? What's going on? I had a guy the other day, we were at a gas pump, and this guy had eight different people all in his conversation. He had the biggest voice, and he was just ready to do something about these gas prices, and he wanted you to know about it. And everyone's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're like, we're going to let this guy rant a little bit. He needs some breathing space. There's a lot of panic going on, and I know that you come to faith not to hear about all the events of the day and us just revisit the headlines, but these kinds of things weigh heavy on us. They come into the building with us. They they sit in our rows with us while we're trying to focus on, I just want to focus on the Lord. I just want to hear the scripture. I just want to sing songs, but then I get all of these trials and tests like gas prices, but also other forms of inflation and other family dramas and all these things that are waiting for me as soon as I leave this building. And so we wrestle with these things. And often someone in my position feels like we're presenting to you things, truths and, 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 and real life, but it's not connecting sometimes to real life. And, and the, and the Lord has designed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given us the word to follow you to the gas pump, believe it or not, to be with you in the checkout line of the grocery store, believe it or not. To inform you and to comfort you in the middle of whatever family struggle you're going with a relationship breakdown. That the gospel has that kind of relevancy. But so many things of the world are trying to crowd it out. They're trying to compete for that space in our minds and in our hearts. I say all of this because we're getting back into Ephesians 1. And Paul is talking about some very lofty things that if we're not being careful, we could feel like it's very disconnected from the reality of the gas pump. Paul has been, uh, in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, the writer, the Apostle Paul, has been giving us this long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. 
Again, I'm trying to remember that where you're sitting, this is the beginning and this is the end. From verse 3 to verse 14, that he's been giving what we've seen as a Hebrew eulogy, a celebration, something that he's saying in one sentence without taking a breath, and he's, and he's proclaiming all the things that are worth celebrating. He's already talked to us about the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenlies. He's talked to us about how thankful he is that God chose him and chose us by electing us to be his sons and daughters. And then last week, Pastor Tom really, in a a great way, helped us understand redemption, seeing that God, even though we had wandered away, even though we had, uh, had become slaves and purchased by sin, that God bought us back, that he redeemed us. And brought us back to him. And Paul is celebrating all of these things. But Paul is not disconnected from the pain at the pump, as we would say. He's not just saying these lofty truths from his office somewhere in a religious tower. Just thinking, what are the things I can say about God? Paul is writing these truths from a prison cell. His problems are much more severe than expensive gas prices and expensive groceries and those kinds of things. He's not sure whether or not he's getting out of there alive. He doesn't know if he'll be reunited with the church folks that he loves so much. And yet he still has cause to celebrate. And as he celebrates his blessings that are in the heavenlies, um, he, he knows because it has to count for more than what he's experienced on earth because things on earth aren't going so well for him. He's, he's celebrating election because he knows that he was somebody that was, he thought he was serving God, but he was really running in the opposite direction of God. And God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came and interrupted that pursuit and said, you're, you're railing against me. You're persecuting me. And he, and he miraculously changed Paul's course. So Paul says, thank God that I was elected, that I was chosen because that isn't the direction that I was heading See, Paul is celebrating all of these lofty truths and he wants us to hear them because he knows that they can be practical for us. And in this first part of Ephesians, he's using a lot of financial language. And we have to remember that he is speaking to people in Ephesus and perhaps some of the other churches he might have intended for this letter to get around to other places. But in particular, in Ephesus, it was sort of the banking capital. It was like the Wall Street of the Roman Empire, at least for that region. So as Paul is dropping a lot of financial terms, he's not doing it to talk about money. He's doing it to enter where their brains are already at. If he had sent this letter to, say, Hollywood, he would have talked about the gospel in the picture of how it informs story and who the hero or the main character is. If he was writing this letter to folks in Nashville, he would play it out like a song. Or if he was sending this letter to the people of Detroit who build our automobiles and stuff, he would talk about the gospel and how it how it changes us from like an engine standpoint or how the motor moves forward or something. He would use those metaphors not to communicate just the thing that they were doing, but to get their understanding to what God has done to an even bigger extent. Paul isn't just talking about money here. He's making the bigger point. He's saying our true security, the wealth that we have in Christ is beyond the temporary financial concerns that we have. We could say it this way as so many have tried to reduce the blessing of God to the things that you and I can can feel and, and experience only 
In other words, God isn't real if he hasn't filled up my checking account or if he hasn't um, made my health uh, situation better or something like that. And there are so many that have made, unfortunately, a great career off of saying that God will bless you if you just believe hard enough in those tangible ways. So that when all those tangible ways don't show up in the life of the believer, they say, well, my faith must not be strong enough or God doesn't care. But God's treasure, what Paul is explaining to us in Ephesians 1, his treasure is cheapened when we reduce it to merely the material world. God's treasure goes beyond the things that we can touch and we can see and we can smell. So here Paul is finishing this monumental exposition of praise on a very unifying note because this whole letter is marching towards the unity of the church. He wants the church to be brought together in unity. And so all of these pieces are marching towards that end. In verse 11 is where we pick up our text. And I'm going to read straight through to uh, verse 14. Paul writes, in him, that's Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Maybe you've picked up this very financial tone that he is laying out for us here. It's a lot of very important words that we'll try to slow down and, and break out, but we're only doing this in one message today. And there are many who have made a very elongated study of this passage. You can take verses 11 through 14 and spend weeks and weeks and weeks on them. We won't be doing that this morning, but I'm hoping I'm wet, wetting your appetite a little bit to continue in it. The first thing I want us to focus on as we look at this paragraph is that our salvation, what you and I have experienced in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the eternal life that has been planted within our heart is locked in a vault. I'm just going to keep the financial metaphor going so strong. You're going to be so sick of financial terms by the time we're done. But the vault of our salvation, according to Paul here, is the will of God. Now, this probably isn't that mind-blowing of a statement, but I, I think it's something that we don't often think about. I think that we desire security perhaps more than anything else in life. You might say, well, I don't really know if that's true. I have other concerns and considerations, but I think it comes out in a lot of different forms. I think we look for security emotionally in how we interact with other people or what what they give us for things like maybe confidence or any of those kinds of things or comfort. Financial security, of course, is way towards the top of our list, not if not the top of our list. Relational security, I want to make sure the people that are in my life aren't walking out on me. We spend a lot of time thinking about the security that seems to so often elude us. We just want to know that the things that we're doing now, the decisions we're making, the money we're investing, or the work that we're doing will work out, that it will pay off. Paul is trying to get us to see that the security that we really have, the security that we really need to be distracted by, and the security that we really need to be preoccupied with, is something that is locked in a secure vault that is built on the will of God. 
It's a secure inheritance. This is what he said to us in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I was struck with the first two words this week as I was looking at this. I was struck with the first two words in him. And I camped on that for a little bit because immediately I was thinking to myself, we're going to see this phrase over and over and over again in Paul's writings. Nearly 170 times Paul uses a phrase similar to in him or in Christ. We'll talk about why here in a second. But as I'm thinking about in him, I'm thinking about, well, so much of my life is in me. Maybe you can relate. Yes, you can. Whether you admit it or not, you can relate. So much of my life is in Brent. What do I bring to the table? What am I able to earn? What am I able to figure out? What do I feel like I need in order for my own comfort and safety and security? What, is, what are the ways in which I can manipulate my world to be pleasing to my existence? How's my day going to go? How's my family going to turn out? How's my car going to run? All of these kinds of things plague my mind to where I very rarely, it would seem, focus on my life in him. And yet there has been no security that's come from Brent. All my efforts, all of my, my frustrations, all of my ponderings, all of my obsessions often lead me in heartache or failure or embarrassment. I've had a great life. I continue to have a great life and I'm thankful to the Lord for the life I have. And we should be as the Lord continues to bless us. But the things I think about, the where my memory goes is all the ways I've tried to mess it up. In Brent, there isn't this inheritance that I've been able to obtain. It has let me down in so many ways. So I relate to Paul using a phrase like in him or in Christ over and over and over again in all of his writings because Paul is completely done with in Paul kind of living. Paul had built this incredible career, had amounted incredible success. He was very well known, very well educated, very zealous. He was literally called a zealot who would chase down Christians, followers of Christ, to eradicate them, oversee their murder, so that he could say, I am protecting the one true God, Jehovah, by eliminating these followers of an upstart Messiah. All of those efforts, all of those obsessions, all of that energy ended up leaving him with no inheritance until Christ rescued him and saved his soul and put him on a new path. So Paul is done with the in Paul kind of uh, uh, living in so many other passages of scripture and some of his other letters and stuff. He makes it very clear. All the things you think are impressive about me. What does he say? I count them as garbage. Useless. He was done with in Paul. He wanted to obsess about being in Christ. And I think it would be better for us to do the same. This phrase here, we've obtained an inheritance. It, it can rightly be translated two different ways. And I think both serve a purpose for us here. And I'm not going to need to get into which one I think it is. I think it's kind of a toss up really. And I can't quite tell from the context which way I would go with this. But this phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. It could either translate the way we see it written right out for us in scripture, which is we have obtained. We There was something for us to get. 
There was a portion for us to have, and we have obtained this, this inheritance. The other way that this could be translated is we were made an inheritance for someone else, namely God. This, of course, like I said, is, is right looking at it both ways, at least in terms of the way scripture presents our standing with the Lord. Deuteronomy 32 9 says that the Lord's portion is his people. And that's just one statement of so many others, particularly in numbers and so many others. He t- looks at the Levitical priesthood. He says, they are my people to resent, to represent me. Um, as priests and everything. So the Lord gathers those of his own for his own portion, his own inheritance. But also the psalmist says that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So that's a possession that we get. The Lord belongs to us. And then right after the comma, he says the people whom he has chosen that he scoops up as his heritage. So it's going both ways here. But it's important for us to think about it in the way that maybe our English translation didn't put down for us, that you and I were made an inheritance for God, a people for his own possession. Imagine what this does to our day. Imagine what this does to our panic at the pump and the other places in which our lives seem like they could very easily unravel, is that God got something out of the deal when he saved you. We, we rightly think about all the praise and the glory that goes to him going, I can't believe you saved a wretch like me, we sing. But he says, yeah, I saved you. You were a wretch, yes. But your value to me because of my love for you means I get you too. You belong to me. You are my possession. Our world is aching for someone to love them in this way, to want them, to desire them, to single them out, to notice them, to prefer them. We can say like the hymn writer Wade Robinson, he says, his forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. This possession, if you will, goes both ways. It's God's secure inheritance. But he also, uh, Paul revisits for us this very key word in our text to reveal God's secure strategy. He goes back to the word predestined, which we already saw in verses 4 and 5, when Paul wrote that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the facets that we've already discussed about predestination and God choosing and stuff. Frankly, it's too stressful for me to go back there, but um, I would revisit, I, I'd encourage you to revisit that message from a few weeks back and to, to get some uh, deeper understanding of how we tackled that in context of this letter. But there's a different facet that I think is really fascinating that jumped out to me in my study this week. Why would Paul be emphasizing predestination and God's choosing an election and his foreordained or preordained plans to these people? In the culture of that day where so much worship was going on with God's small g, I don't know how to do a g backwards for you. 
those gods, small g, they were used to serving or fearing or revering gods that were fickle or erratic or short tempered, or we never know if we're pleasing them. There's no real set of rules that are clear to us. And so the gods, whoever they be, actually ended up looking, sounding, and appearing a lot like human behavior. And so there's a lot of stress that goes with that. There's a lot of a lack of faith that they are in it for the good of uh, those that are lesser than those gods and all of that kind of thing. So Paul is now introducing a God, the God, who's even, who's steady, who's who's got things thought out way in advance, well beyond our ability to wrap our heads around his plan. And for uh, the, the love that he has for us, he's demonstrating this stability because he's always had a plan and he chose us in eternity past. But that doesn't compete when, or com- compute, I should say, when we're trying to think about gods that are in our own making, which, yes, certainly happened in that Greek and Roman culture, but are still happening today. In an article from Sophia Bricker, she had helped, she helps us understand that the gods, the small g gods, or the Romans and Grecians, were much more human-like than godlike. The many stories of Zeus and his lustful escapades or irrational anger bursts mirror mankind's sinful behavior and choices. The gods, again, small g, capricious and sinful attitudes, often resembled humanity more than divinity. Creating one's own God, she continues, therefore is a link to the desire to be in control of one's own life and future. Satan's original lie and temptation to mankind was that humans could become their own gods. Historically, this temptation has proven to be true as humans made images to look like themselves or to have characteristics that reflect mankind. The heart of the problem of idolatry is that humans want to be in God's place. Paul is speaking into a culture of people that have been uh, led astray. Jesus looked on the people with compassion because it says it looks like they were harassed. And even those outside of the Jewish heritage and Jewish culture were being harassed by this belief in small g gods because they were no more trustworthy than their own thinking. Who wants to serve a God who's got nothing more figured out than even they have? Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So many people initially express this frustration with a God they can't figure out. Well, if I can't understand how he does everything, I can't believe him. But a God that you can completely figure out, is he worth being God? Not only that, do you really want to know everything he knows about the future and when what's going to happen to us and stuff? Do you really want to know all that? The predetermination of God brings comfort to otherwise mysterious plans. This is why Paul was celebrating this. And you say, ah, it's not really rolling off the tongue for me. I'll just say it simply. God knowing and planning things in advance should calm us down, should cause us to not freak out so much. Why? Because he knows. He knows what he's up to. He knows what he's been up to. He knows what he's going to be up to. And he knows my part to play in it. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you gave God the benefit of the doubt in whatever you're going through? The doubt's going to be there. That's what makes us human. Don't beat yourself up over doubt. 
But when's the last time you said, I don't get it, I don't know what you're up to, but you do, and I have complete confidence in that. Our text said that God does everything with purpose or with aim according to the counsel of his will. The counsel there is referring to his His uh, considered or thoughtfully wise plan. For us to think about that, that you know, we've asked that question now several times. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He's not making it up as he goes. He's not dealing with a plan B because he didn't see this thing coming. Our salvation is locked in a vault of his will, much stronger than you and I could ever comprehend. Secondly, the deposit of our salvation is the Holy Spirit. We go back to verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, focus on that word for a second, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Continue to verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What is it? That full eternal life that awaits us. We have eternal life in us now, not fully realized. Why? Because we get a deposit of it now. And it's an insured investment. <clears throat> Paul says that there's an investment on our part. When you heard the word of truth and then you believed in him. Remember we said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about election and God's choice. That there was a mystery to how this all comes together. If, If our salvation is all of Christ yet there is a work that we can do to be saved and that is to believe. That we invest our trust in the plan of God. And that's all that's required of us and he's done all the work. There's a mystery in how those things tie together, but they do. And it's not enough just to hear the truth, but you have to engage in that act of trust. You have to put your money in the account to use the crude term. Romans 10 verses 14 through 17 say, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they then to hear without someone preaching? I chose these verses from a self-serving perspective. Just wanted you to appreciate me more. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And as it's written, something you didn't need to know about me, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Those of you that do know me, you know that's not true. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what Paul is saying and using this quote from Isaiah is he's saying it's not enough just to hear the truth, but you put something into the equation. What is that thing you put in? You put your own belief. You put your trust. It's an obedience to the truth. It's not enough for us just to say, I was in church on Sunday and I heard the beautiful footed preacher. It's not enough for us to say that. We have to say, I actually heard the truth and I decided to respond to it. I stepped, I took the next step in obedience to it. And when we believe this radical change occurs, and I want to be careful how I say this because sometimes we think, well, I'm not perfect yet, so it must not have stuck. It must not have took. That isn't what the scriptures teach us at all. It does teach us, though, in 2 Corinthians 5, however, that if anyone is, again, in Christ, Paul loves that phrase, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come in to take its place. The the presence of this changed life is our deposit. It's our proof, if you will, that something radical has happened, that a transformation has taken place. Again, you might say, well, yeah, but I don't always feel like a new creation. I feel like the old hasn't quite died, if you know what I'm saying. I get that. The scriptures get that. But a new life has been placed in you. God puts eternal life in you now, a life that brings new quality to your life, not just longer days, not just more years, but a quality of life that comes into you. We talked about this in John, the Zoe, which is that quality of life. It changes your outlook. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from so many in this room who have said, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how it happened. I didn't feel a tingle go down my spine, but I know it was like getting a new set of glasses. I started seeing the world differently. The Holy Spirit came and took residence in my heart, changed my thinking about things. I didn't know exactly what to do, and I wasn't real good at doing this like holiness thing and stuff, but I started seeing the difference. It started opening up my eyes to it. And it started creating in me a desire towards obedience. Now I want to give him more of my life. I want to worship him with my being. I'll figure out how as he leads me and is patient with me. But the desire is there. And that's where the transformation starts to take shape. And this is our down payment for the future. Remember, he said that those that are in Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The seal here, my, my, my mind goes towards sort of like rubber gaskets or Tupperware or something. It's going to stay fresh and it's going to, that's sure, I'm, I'm sure a part of it. But really the seal that's being communicated is more of that official mail delivery signet, uh, signet, uh, stamp, if you will. Uh, that the kings would send, if they were going to send an official documentation or a treaty or something along those lines, they would drip the hot wax on the on the envelope and fold it, and they'd plant their ring on there so the person knowing when they received the letter, they know this came from the king. It carries its authority. It carries his ownership of the message inside. Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes in our life, that it's like that signet ring from the king that says, this one belongs to me. I have authority. I have ownership over them. The presence of the Holy Spirit serves as proof that that eternal life is in us. Now, I know that this is where it gets a little squishy. If you've been around evangelical circles at all, you know that churches debate and divide over how the presence of the Holy Spirit manifests himself. How he comes and, and works in people, whether or not it's always in bold, miraculous ways that can kind of be called down from heaven, or whether it's in a more quiet form and fashion, where it's just a quiet trust that I believe he's there and stuff. And a lot of debate has been raging for centuries about the presence of the Holy Spirit, the proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is outside of our purview this morning. So I'm going to reduce it to the, the agreeable core. Uh, when we're talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think, personally, I think this is the aspect of the presence of the Holy Spirit that we should be obsessing about a lot more than anything else. And that's found in Galatians 5. The fruit, as it's famously referred to, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, kind of plaguing our culture now, isn't it? Arrogance and rightness and I'm smarter and better than you and you're an idiot because you don't agree with me and all this kind of stuff. Let us not become conceited because the Holy Spirit doesn't allow for that. Provoking one another, envying one another. You see, if we obsessed about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that he would manifest himself in a way consistent with this list. Again, you're not going to nail all of this perfectly all the time. Don't you feel like sometimes you look at this list and you go, some of that I can do pretty well. Some of that the Lord's kind of matured me, brought me along. I get some of that. Some of this other stuff's coming awfully slow. Or I'll tell you what's even more frustrating. If you've been doing this a while, the things you thought you mastered, you have to start back over with because you've blown it. This side of heaven, I don't think we'll have this list perfectly in balance in our life. But is the spirit working? Is there evidence of a moving? Is there evidence of a striving, desiring, changing over time? That is the presence. That's the proof. That's the deposit that the spirit guarantees in our life. They would refer to that guarantee, that's Erebon, whatever that's supposed to mean. But really, in our language, what it means is a deposit or a first installment or earnest money if you've done real estate transactions. So the money that I'm putting down is going to lessen the cost on the other side. If I put $10,000 down on this house, then when I actually purchase the house, it will be $10,000 cheaper because I already put that money down. So Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is that guarantee that this life that we're living will continue for all of eternity. So we've looked at it from the aspect of our salvation being locked in a vault from the deposit, the proof of our salvation being given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's close just by looking at the interest where all good investments should be focused on is what am I getting for my investment? What's my return on my investment? Paul makes it clear. We're going to go back through the text. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised uh, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He says that phrase twice in our paragraph to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. The interest, the return on the investment is God's own glory, his own praise. We've been saying this right out of the gate. God is in it for God. We happen to be the beneficiaries of the fact that he is in it for him. There's none higher than him. Anytime anybody ever accuses your God of being egotistical, you say, well, if there's none higher than him, what would that be if he gave like, you know, some celebrity or something more praise than him? He would be guilty of idolatry. He needs to be concerned with his praise above all others because he is above all others. God is in it for his praise. Now, Paul is weaving into this discussion for the praise of his glory, kind of a subtle for us, at least it was probably very obvious to them, but a very subtle way of us getting, seeing where he's getting at here. Back in verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first hope in Christ, 
He's referring to the Jewish people there. Paul is saying, we who are the first ones looking for the Messiah. Now, as we saw in John, they weren't looking with a lot of information, were they? They didn't have a keen sense of awareness of how he was going to show up. They missed a lot of the clues that Isaiah had given them. They were looking for one who was going to come in and just be a political powerhouse and one who was going to initially, uh, instantly, I should say, um, uh, establish their nation and defeat their enemies and all that sort of stuff. They missed the fact that he'd be humble, that he'd be sacrificial, that he would be beaten and rejected and despised. They missed all of that, but they still were the first to hope in the rescuing Messiah, the one that would come and, and uh, restore God's people. Paul is saying we Jews were the first to hope in Christ, that we might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you... When you heard the word of truth and believed, who's, who's the you that is hearing that letter? It'd be all of the non-Jewish people, you call them all the Gentiles. And all of you, when you heard and believed, were sealed with the spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession. You see what Paul's getting at here? He's writing to these people that he loves, that he spent time with. And he says, keep in mind, you were two distinct people. You had your own camps. You had your own factions. You had your own set of beliefs. You had all those sorts of things. But you came together under the banner of forgiveness. You came together under the offer of salvation. And God has made you one. You, you were God's chosen people and many missed the signs and didn't believe in him. But some of you did to the praise of his glory. And some of you were invited to the party late, but you still received the invitation to the praise of his glory. We are now one church. And, and if God doesn't give us a secure investment, if he doesn't lock this salvation in a vault, if he doesn't provide for us this deposit of the Holy Spirit, then this unity doesn't happen. It blows the mind of the world to see when people who have no business getting along, getting along. People have no business loving each other, loving each other, serving one another. And what would lead us to do that? Well, because we all know that before the Lord, we are wretched sinners. And we've been recipients of this amazing grace. So whatever our histories are, whatever our other things are, the things that we war over and fight over, those things now matter less because what matters most is the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. And Paul calls this church a we, an our, an us. He's going to underscore this point in chapter 2, and we'll just take a preview of it when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our unity is going to be built on the humility that we were sinners saved by grace and we deserve nothing of which we've been given. Don't we forget that a lot of times? In our rightness, in our warring, in our Facebook blasting and all the other things that we do and stuff. Don't we forget that we of all people should be the humblest because we recognized our need for salvation and we got an invitation to have that paid for and corrected. We just simply believe that was all our only investment. He did all the other work. He took our salvation, locked it in a vault and said, even while you wait for it, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit to change your life right now. 
That's what brings us together. He gets all the praise and glory because he's done all the work. You and I can have peace when we come into the rising gas prices and grocery prices and fights and heartbreaks in our families and with our friends and all of those sorts of things if we hold true to the fact that this isn't the sum of our entire life. That we have an investment been made on our in half, uh, on, on our behalf. The greatest problem that you and I have is our sin, and that's been covered. It's been paid for. The investment is secure. Everything else in our life may not go the way that we hoped or wished, yet we have something to celebrate. This is why Paul is freaking out from a prison cell. Because it's not as bad as it looks, because he knows that's not all there is. You belong to the Lord as much as he belongs to you. I don't know if I'm saying that theologically accurate, but I hope you get my point. That we focus so much on the fact that he's my God and he has me, but he has you in his grip. There's security in that. This is what brings us together, unified as a family. And we're only just getting started examining this. Can I ask you to stand? Let's close our time in prayer. I do apologize for the length. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Lord, I thank you for your word, how we love your word, your truth. I pray, Lord, it would continue to rest in our hearts. It would follow us home. It would meet us at the gas pump. It would meet us in our workplaces or our kitchens and living rooms. Lord, your word is the transformative tool that you've given to us to change our lives. May your Holy Spirit continue to illuminate in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.